Growing a business is hard, but it does not have to be. Once a week, we take a break from the hustle and bustle in business to talk about innovations and what's new in the C-suite. This is the Fractional C-Suite Retreat, and I'm Joseph Frost. Pull up a seat at the fire, grab a drink, smoke a cigar, and just join me as we relax, learn, and get inspired. This retreat is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow with better marketing strategy. Welcome. Today's guest is a good friend of mine. He's a business owner and a powerful leader of a remote first company. He's passionate about uh, having a well-rounded company in today's uh, crazy times. And um, he is founder and CEO of Sprius, which is now known as what, Neil? Rayobite. Rayobite, formerly known as Sprius. Welcome, Neil. Amy, Neil, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Joe and I, when did we meet, Joe? Was probably at the start of EO. Just a couple of years ago. We were introduced a while ago from Eric Eric Sullivan. Back yes. Scar Lounge days. But, yeah, been thank a, you for having me, Joe. Oh, yeah. Thanks for being here. And we've had a chance to get to know each other real well over the last uh, couple of years and traveling together and um, being in entrepreneurs organization together. It's been uh been fun. It's been a fun ride, and I'm excited to have you on the show and talk about some things that um, are near and dear to your heart right now. But um, the first question I'd like to start with, Neil, is uh, what's going on? Um, what's something that you are aware of or interested in, um, that an opportunity you think other C-suite leaders or business owners should be aware of? Something I'm very interested in, and I believe to be an opportunity is my perspective right now is the as our as our culture of work is shifting has been has been accelerated from COVID switching to remote um, we were always a remote first company so we were fortunate that this was an easy transition for us to, to handle but what has it our tools and processes have caught up but what I don't believe has caught up is how the heck do we do culture remotely and companies who are remote first like ourselves since the last seven years we've had a crack at that but we're still not great and it's just kind of accelerated our our uh, awareness and geez we, we were actually really far behind so we we're remote first and we're still I, I feel a bit ashamed that we are where we are um things i'm learning and I'm very interested in is is what us all being in a Zoom call with us, with all, not the, the in-office eight to five, seeing each other, seeing each other's body language, each other's feeding off the energy, going to the water coolers, water cooler talks. How do you create this connected culture of people who are motivated, inspired? What stops them from between their meetings going on Indeed and looking for the next job and going to the next company? I'm very interested in that. I have a lot of ideas to share on that, but I'm curious, Joe, if what you see with your companies and what that's looked like from your perspective. Yeah. Well, I'm certainly curious for your ideas because that is a, uh, something that I've been pondering quite a bit. We also are remote first company. We were remote before pandemic and, and grew, uh, exponentially during the pandemic. So we're, uh, it's been top of mind, um, because it's for many companies they are just realizing it. I don't think we understood that it was an issue. We just kind of assumed it wouldn't be a problem. Culture is culture, right? But the realities are we have to be much more intentional about creating cultural moments during our meetings. And I think that's a really interesting thing that most companies are very intentional and most systems and processes that you learn about with respect to running a good meeting are all about keeping it succinct, short, tight agendas, get people in and out as fast as possible. No BS, let's go. And so that's how we've ran our meetings forever, most of us. Well, with remote first, the meetings are the time where you build the culture. That yeah, is it. Yeah. That is the only time. So we have taken our traditional uh, meeting agendas and thrown them out the door. We've taken that traditional um strict adherence to time in the agenda and thrown it out the door. And we've allowed for much more conversational 
open time scheduled during weekly meetings. And that's been a big, big benefit to our, uh, what I've seen in, in the short term of doing that, significantly more engagement from all members of the team inside that Zoom meeting that we didn't have before. Mm-hmm. Just by throwing the agenda out the door. Mm-hmm. And we still get things done. We still have objectives, but. Right. And, and it, that's what, that's what's interesting to me is that us both being remote first weren't aware of our deficits until COVID happened. We were so remote first, we were just kind of going status quo. And that's, and I believe one variable at play that we've had to like, kind of, oh crap, we're, we're behind the ball is that all these companies are going remote first. Now employees who value working remote can now have more options to choose from. And we as leaders, hearing you've changed, you've material changed a lot. I've, we've materially changed a lot. And so all companies are like, oh crap, we have to be the dominant player. And, and what are, what are, what's one thing or a couple things that you've done that you've seen have been helpful? Well, you mentioned meetings and one of my areas that uh, I'm leaning towards this direction, but I could, I can see the arguments for the other when we talk about meetings, I'm becoming more and more of the belief to remove meetings and work as async, asynchronous as possible. Um, this is talked about a lot. This book is now getting more popular, but I read it maybe three, four years ago. Um, remote works by uh, the, the founder of Basecamp. It's a pretty short book and they describe Basecamp. And this was written maybe seven years ago, so before all of this. And he writes how like how how they run their remote culture. And it's very inspiring, but it's very extreme. Like this, this uh, but no meetings. He talks about it's too easy in our culture today that to, to look at someone's Google calendar and put your meeting on their calendar. Yeah. Whereas he said at their company, you have to make it as hard as possible. You have to message somebody and add, type them. Yes, it's inefficient, but like things like Calendly and looking at each other's Google accounts have allowed us to interrupt our days. And so he talks a lot about the interruptions that we've created now with this remote environment. So I'm, I'm pondering a lot about re- meetings. So I was curious to hear you, you saying we have to do meetings in a different way. I'm not sure yet where our meetings, I definitely agree. That's our opportunity to to connect in those moments, but I'm pushing our, our company to have less meetings. The, the second example that comes to mind is, so the base camp example. I just found a, a couple months ago, so uh, GitLabs is a, is a in programming terms, Git is a, is a way that you commit code to a repository. GitLabs has their entire company, I think they're like 2,000, no, not 2,000, th- thousands of employees, big company, and they have their entire company like playbook down to down to what what headphones they recommend their employees buy all publicly online. There's over two thousand pages that they say here is how to run an async remote company. And oh my gosh, you can just like drill and drill and drill. I mean, they have like they have like their whole strategic planning and like all the way up to the highest level. Their OKRs, how they set OKRs, how do you communicate down to again? Like I said, like Here's a chair to buy, and here's a chair not to buy. And so this idea of asynchronous, they're the, I think they're the gold standard when I look at that. And I'm asking like, oh, geez, that's pretty intense to get there, but we're exploring it. Anyways. I really like the asynchronous idea. I, I had not heard that. I'm familiar with Basecamp. I've been using them for a dozen years in one of my companies. So um, it makes sense that they came up with that. Yeah, that, that, that they wrote that book before others yeah. have been thinking about it. I need to dig into that. And I love the idea of stealing somebody else's playbook and mm-hmm. uh, just taking the best pieces of it instead of recreating it ourselves. Uh, but the other thing I know you do and we do, or we don't do it, uh, uh, we're doing more of, I should say, um, is we still prioritize in-person meetings with the remote team when practical and as much as possible. And those are, those are, contra- you know, those are, those are hard to figure out how, how, what's, what's, what's the maximum amount of time, the practical amount of time, but most, you know, most recently we made two changes, one with our client work. So we do all of our client remote workly as well, remotely as well. So our clients 
also don't get a chance to meet us in the same way. Like we're not in the same rooms with them often and we're, we're a fractional CMO company. So by definition, we're also not just their, you know, one, they're not our only client for our CMOs. But we, uh, a year ago, realized that the in-person kickoffs were critically important. That when we, mm-hmm. we were doing those virtually, but we to build the real rapport and trust with our clients, we mandated company-wide that we would go back to in-person kickoffs for all new engagements with at least one of the partners also being there just to show you know, our support and to stay connected. And then strongly encourage quarterly in-person meetings. And um, we're, we're, you know, we're 100% on the kickoffs. We're, we're probably 50% on the quarterlies because it, it's also a burden sometimes for the client to, to make time for an in-person uh, meeting when Zoom becomes so easy. But it's less valuable to them, I think. It's more valuable to us because we get that one-on-one time with the client when we're in-person. So uh, we get that about 50% of the time. But even though we're 100% remote, everybody's virtual around the world, in-person first is a, is a big deal for us. What have you done to connect your remote teams personally, in person? Right. So as you said, um, on the employee side, we now are doing a yearly company trip. This last year, we, it was November, November, so about a year ago. Um, we flew, we were able to get maybe about half our team, about 25 people, and they could optionally bring their spouses and their others to Cancun, Mexico. And for a lot of our guys from Ukraine, for example, that's like a, that kind of trip just doesn't happen. It's, it's way too expensive. It's way too far. It's, it's a big, big thing for them to come there and experience that. It was just a really strong building moment just for all of us to like be together. Most of these guys haven't met most of our, most of us hadn't met in person. So that was just like, like, wow, Hey, you're a real person. Cool. So that was like our first year of, of doing it company wide and we plan to continue doing it. Um, I know one of our competitors who has about, I think about 300 employees. They also do. I've asked their CEO, like what, what's been the greatest value. They've always been remote the last 12 years. And he said, that's the greatest things that always the yearly company trip, make it a top priority. Don't let it be a, don't let it be an optional expense on your budget sheet. It has to be mandatory. Um, so I'm hearing that quite often. And on the client side, you kind of gave me an aha on, I never framed it this way. I saw the value in it, but now I, I understand the framing is, is a bit more clear to me. This last, last, last September, so a year ago, it was, I went to Europe for about six weeks and it, I was meeting, I think, with one client. And in our industry, the industry I'm in, web scraping proxies, we're dealing a lot of times with like CTOs, tech guys that, how do I say it? It's not insulting. I'm the exact same way. If a sales guy reaches out to me, I'm a tech guy. I don't want to talk to a salesperson. So our clients by nature, we're a bit, we're getting close to a commodity as a product. It's like, does it work or does it not? Yep, it does. Is it close to the cheapest price? Yep, it's, I don't need to talk to you. There's no need to have a, a, a QBR, quarterly business review. There's no need, we don't need to talk. They, don't, they, they mostly ignore emails and everything. So I have one client that finally agreed to meet. I can't remember which one. And what I did was I emailed our top 10 customers who are also in Europe. And I, and I just said, hey, and I, I lied. Hopefully none of them hear this, but I lied. And I said, I'm going to be in insert country, their country. Do you have time to meet up for lunch? I wasn't going to be in their country, but I, I just said that. And they said, well, yeah, they're going to be here. Sure. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So in seven years uh, since my company, I had only met, I think maybe three customers in person and maybe in total like video calls. I probably only have had like 20 video calls over seven years across tens of thousands of customers because our customers just aren't those people. I finally cracked the code and I suspect one of those reasons is kind of what you're, you're saying, how I'm kind of framing it is like we seek human connection. We, we as humans do. And if there's an opportunity like that, like, oh, someone's here and reach, yeah, sure. Why not go get lunch with them? What's the worst? There's an hour in a day. We pay them a lot of money per month. Why not go meet? And since that, oh my gosh, the what's been untapped with with our business relationships and then introducing me to other customers and it's been profound. So the value in it of itself, uh, meeting in person, as you said, with clients has been mind blowing for me. Yeah. 
I, yeah, I love that. I'm going to be in your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. If you say yes to this email, I certainly will be there. So, so it was seven countries in six weeks that I did in, in Europe because I just got like yeses all around. So I just had to navigate my schedule. Some some of them I was there for two days and then I have to get on a plane to hit the time. Well, we both share the realities of uh, having employees um, all over the world. And yours are mostly based in Ukraine. And I know with what was going, what's been going on, and and uh, yeah. what your company and you went through, and more your employees certainly than than you. But um, how did you how did you navigate the support for this remote batch of workers that you had in Ukraine in the middle of a war? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so what did you do? Yeah, to back up for context, we had nineteen guys that were a part of our tech team you know, from Ukraine that started when this war started. And we're, we're a tech company. And in our tech company, we have 19 employees who are tech people. We do the math. There's every one of them to keep our lights on. And that was not our first concern. It was just, that was the reality. It's like, holy shit, these guys are in trouble. What are we going to do to help them? Business. So one thing we reacted, we went, and, we went to Upwork and found just admins that fill spots immediately to um, backfill as quickly as possible to keep the lights on for a company. When then, as we look at the start of the war, first thing, how do we support these guys? Um, one was money, salary. We continued paying them their monthly salaries and fees. Um, we also gave them additional money for, for them, the family. And um, so from a monetary standpoint, and secondly, we had our administrative team remotely was able to those guys, you think about it, you have missiles going off. It's chaos. People are freaking out. You're freaking out. Your family's freaking out. The last thing you want to think about is researching online, like your next Airbnb. Hey, where am I going to stay? And so we were able to, as a remote company, to ask like, who on our team can do what to help support this effort? And so we had our administrative team search all kinds of options to, uh, to find different lodging options for all the different guys. Um, I was tapping into different EO and YPO networks to say, hey, anyone can get some help. And so one thing we were able to do as well, we found through a connection with y- EO to YPO, there was a guy who knew um, a head of security in, in Ukraine. And basically, we were able to fund and pay for an armed security escort out of Kiev to the Western region. And so, again, through through just navigating all of us swarming on this, we're able to get our guys and their families out. Many of them, or they're all safe, but many of them did three different cars. So it was about 15 total people were able to, to get out. Monetarily, we made sure, hey, don't worry about your, your gases. Prices are going to be skyrocketed. People are going to be scrambling for food. All, all these different money worries completely gone. And then logistically, we had just different team members and focusing on different areas of so they can just focus on, I just need to get to safety and get to the West. And that's number one priority. We will handle everything else. Don't worry about where your next paycheck's coming from. If you need more money, let us know, we'll figure it out. Thanks to a lot of also donations as well. I was fortunate to help them. In those regards. Uh, well, I watched that happen, Neil, and it was pretty amazing what uh, your team was able to accomplish for the rest of your teammates. It was just inspirational and uh gosh i remember the i'm just kind of cheering up thinking about it because i just remember how much you were impacted by that individually how did how did you handle that i mean you're you're safe right like but yet you're empathizing and with your team so how did how did it impact you how did how did you deal with all of that as well yeah uh, i think First and foremost, it, it starts by saying my my pain, my trauma is nowhere near that theirs is, and so it's a when I when I share this, it's it's not saying like for me, it's for me. It's but I will I will share my my perspective on it, knowing or emphasizing that that theirs like I can't I can't put myself in their shoes. Um, and for me as a leader of the company and leader of the remote company, I see, I see those guys once a year. Um, many of those guys, not many, maybe 
four of them have been with me since day one. So it's seven years I've worked with these guys that helped me build this business from the ground up and went through the stresses and turmoils over the years. So to say they're the friends is an understatement. They're, they're brothers to me. And um, no one saw this coming, obviously. It was a complete shock. I was in Spain at the time on the day with happened to be our CTO who now lives in Poland. He, he was a Ukrainian national. He left after the 2014 crisis. He said, I just don't trust it's going to keep happening to this country. And then he get out. He had to pull, unfortunately. So him and I were in Spain doing some leadership retreat stuff. And I, I just woke up that morning and I checked my phone. And it was just as clear as day, a headline that says, Russia invades Ukraine. And I just I get goosebumps. It's like, Stunned, I didn't know how to react. And I knew Max has family. His family lives still in Ukraine. He's closer to many of these guys than I am. He knows like the owner of the, the company we contract with. And I remember I was just paralyzed a bit. And I, I walked out to the living room and he was sleeping in the Airbnb. I remember seeing him there laying on a bed like so peacefully at sleep and I, I just I broke down like started crying before I could like go wake him up like here I am to give him the news that hey our friends your family are are at risk their lives and, uh, and he I admire him so much and actually you see this I admire you so much he just jumped to action he he didn't let the emotions control him. He said he started facilitating all these logistics and, and helping our guys get the safety in those chaotic first moments. And um, he and I were able to share this for, for about three days before we had to fly back. But yeah, that um, that was that was the first day, and um, the one that that makes me relive it the most is our so the general manager against Alex. He, uh, he, he's been with me since day one, closest, closest friend of him. And, and picture yourself in, in his shoes. He has a 10 year old, 10 year old son, Timur, and his wife, Alona. They live in Kharkiv, which is the eastern city that was talked a lot about in the news. It's the largest eastern city and people who lives there. That was the first place they shelled the, the missiles. And, uh, I called him. I called him maybe in a few hours into waking up. This all happened at like midnight, bedtime. So they had already been trying to get the hell out of there. And uh, I, I called him a few hours after I woke up. So maybe noon time. And I, I called him. I say, Alex, how you doing? He, they, I think they had two cars. Maybe they didn't quite understand that context. Says, how you doing? And he, he gave a shaky, a shaky, uh, I'm doing a, doing okay, Neil. Uh, it's just really crazy. Chaos is you know, parked on the side of the road right now. And I said, Alex, are you sure? Come on, man. Really, how you doing? He just lost it. As if you know, something's real and powerful when a grown man just, you can just feel the release and he's just crying, sobbing on the phone. and said, Neil, I'm terrified. I'm on the side of this, the road right now with my wife, my 10 year old son, I don't know what to do. There's missiles flying around, there's smoke everywhere. Like, I don't know what to do. And I just, I cried with it. I said, I'm so sorry, Alex. And I had to do my best to show my confidence and say, hey, we're working on it. Our team, everyone's working. Our entire company's working. We're here for you and we're going to get you out of there. And, and through, Luck, safety, will, we, they, we got them to the West and into a, a safe house. We, they had to drive all the way across the country. And it was sort of like a two-day trip they had to navigate. And so we helped them understand like which, again, our admin team comes into the picture and help understand which roads are blocked off, which roads are drivable and, and so forth. So all this to, to, to circle back around is a remote company culture, this this underlined what what it what it means to be a real culture. It's beyond the, the Zoom calls. It's saying well, we're here for each other. And it's as sincere as it, as it gets. 
on this one here. Yeah, I mean, thanks for sharing. That's a powerful story. And it's certainly the extreme of, you know, people are people on both ends of the Zoom call. And that, you know, at that extreme, and you know, it certainly is, makes it more real. But at, at lesser extremes, you know, not to take away from this, this, the, severity of what people are going through in the Ukraine. But we had a, you know, we have people in the Philippines and just a few weeks ago, they had a big typhoon go through there. And all of our team, we have a team in Mexico and the U S was texting and WhatsApping and emailing them. Is everybody okay? Are you guys doing fine? How is it over there? And then that Monday morning, everybody jumped back on and everybody was fine, but they were so Everybody was so grateful that we cared, that we reached out, that we asked, how are you doing? And um, that's just human nature that, you know, transcends the, the digital world. But, you know, it's, it can be fostered even more. You know, I think that that's the opportunity that we need to figure out as leaders with remote first companies is how do you take that human nature and that desire to be to get together and want to help each other out, no matter what's going on, where it's going on. How do you bring that to life in a virtual way? Right. 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 Our actions speak more than the words and moments of crises. And I think the question is, is like, how do we embody it outside the moments of crisis? How, how does the team know that we really do have their back? But how do we embody that, that connection and ability in, in a day-to-day remote work? That's kind of a big open question. Yeah. But it's, it's uh, something we'll continue to yeah. figure out as we yeah. go. Like all, yeah. all good entrepreneurs, we're on a journey. We're just trying to, to figure out where we're going um, next. Um, with that in mind, I, I know we'll segue a little bit to your journey. You're, you also have been doing some very personal uh, kind of feats and changes of your own. Um, talk to me a little bit about, I know yesterday you ran a marathon. Yeah, <laughs> How are you feeling? Yeah. <laughs> Bad. <laughs> Knees are gone. I feel like I'm 80. Or at least what people say they feel like when they're 80, they do something like that. <laughs> Yeah. What motivated you to want to do a triathlon just a few months ago uh, ahead of this marathon just yesterday? What what inspired you to try to start pushing your personal limits? Uh, yeah, so here, as you can see my back for the video watchers, there's my wetsuit right there. Um, I, I started, I did an Ironman in July. An Ironman, for those who don't know, is uh, about 2.4 miles of swimming followed by 112 miles of biking and then followed by a marathon, 26 miles of running. I did that in July. I started training in January. It's only six months from, I never did a triathlon before. I never had swam before. I know how to put myself afloat, but I could do one lap in the pool before I ran out of breath. When I tried it in December and I looked at my friend who was trying to help me, I realized I counted up. I have to do 80 laps to be comparable. I can do one without just being out of complete breath. I'm like, there's no freaking way I'm going to do 2.4 miles, 80 laps of this. But day after day, you just keep training and you show up the race day and it just kind of, this kind of happens. Um, I driver of it and I, there's a blog post I wrote about it. So everything's right. I learned a lot of valuable lessons out of it. I didn't know those lessons were coming until after the fact. My why of it, why did I originally do it? I kind of started back in September when I was in my Europe trip. I was realizing I was in a bit of a rut in terms of like pushing myself above what I'm capable of being. And there's an amazing American psychologist, Abraham Maslow, that wrote The Hierarchy of Needs. Um, a lot of us probably learned that in Psych 101. Um, then he states, what one can be, one must be. And he has a lot of empirical evidence to, to support that there's something to this and I, I couldn't articulate it in that way back then but i just i just felt like i would do maybe like 15 minutes of workout i was still healthy i was still i considered myself to be healthy my heart rate was good I, I, my weight was great so i felt like a healthy person 
I still didn't feel like I was self-actualizing, which was a nausea. And so I compared that, and that, that bled into all parts of my life, personal and work. And I compared it to, I ran a marathon, the first ever marathon. It was a COVID marathon, so I ran by myself, which sucks, not having to race adrenaline. Um, back in, right when COVID started, back in April of 19. And uh, I did this marathon. And leading up to the marathon, I was training. I was doing all the runs and, and staying on a consistent rhythm. What that did is it kept me on my toes. It said, like, I can't not do this 10-mile run today in my training because I'm not going to succeed in the, the marathon. And it was just always this kind of like this, this little subtle tick saying, Neil, no, there's no excuses. Whereas there's no goal. There's no race to to keep you on your toes, you kind of say, ah, you know what? I just don't feel like it today. And that's, I was doing that too often. That bled into all decisions in my life. I just didn't want to, or you, there's too many like, ah, no, ah, no, day after day. And that just compounds over time. So I felt like that was missing. And so in October of last year, I got an email from an EO member as part of my EO. And he said, hey, I got this. There's this great race. I'm going to sponsor it um, with this race. Um, you get a ticket to the race and get this great coach that's going to teach you how to coach you to become an Ironman. I said, all right, that's it. That's my thing. It's That's going to keep me on my toes for sure. And Ironman's, I don't know anything about this, but let's do it. I sign up and like, I didn't really know the extent of what an Ironman really was. I mean, like you, you, you hear it conceptually like, oh yeah, it's that many distances. But like when you actually start training for it and you're like, oh, crap, this is like a lot to, to be able to do in one day. And but anyways, I signed up enthusiastically and, and, and uh, the training started on January 1st. And it, it turns out, it's like sidebar on like what this race was. Like this is the, the most sought after race triathlon in the world. There's uh, over 200,000 spectators, over 4,000 racers, and it sells out immediately. I got tickets to it because of the EO event. And then it turns out my coach, he, <laughs> I read about him in this email, but I just didn't like, I didn't think much of it. It's like, oh, he's really great. He's like won this race. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Well, it turns out my coach is the first person ever to run under eight hours for an Ironman. So if you think of those distances, and again, it's a bit conceptual, like a bit relative. Like I didn't, I was like, oh, eight hours, I don't know. Like, sure, maybe that's cool. But like I did mine in 15 hours. So he did it in half, almost half the time. Like he was running a like a five minute mile for a marathon after doing this bike and after doing the run, and he's still sprinting like a five minute mile. And I'm like, oh my god! And then like I get to meet this guy, and he like won this like race like six times. He was and and the biggest kind of like one that we can all relate to is he was sponsored by Nike. Nike doesn't sponsor anyone but the absolute best. And so here I am, a complete novice to triathlon. <laughs> and I'm signed up for the greatest race of them all, led by this, this mid-middle 50-year-old uh, German guy, this like German as can be. Like if I ever had like a concern, he'd just say, Neil, don't you worry about it. You'll be okay. And we're like, that didn't help me at all. <laughs> like, here I was. And so, yeah, my back to your question as my sidebar, like, why did I do this? It was to keep me on my toes. And sure enough, it worked. I mean, I, that six months was grueling towards the end. I was training about 16 hours a week for about, about two months, almost straight. It was a part-time job. I was like, it was work eating <laughs> sleep eating was like a, like a, a long thing I had to do each day. Cause I just had consumed some of the calories sleeping. And then, uh, training in 16 hours. It was great. It led into my work life. I saw so this pattern, like, it's like, all right, I'm just, I'm going, I'm productive over here. I'm productive over here. And it was cool. I'm glad that it, it did what I was hoping. I've told you before, but congrats on, on completing the, the Ironman. And, and, you know, if you can't do it in eight minutes, 15 or eight hours, 15 hours is, you know, not bad. I, I, <laughs> I could do it in about, you know, 36 days, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but how did you, how did you deal with the completion? You built up six months of your life to this one big event and then it was over. How, how did you feel? Oh, yes. So I, I wrote a blog post on this. Everything is right. Sprays.com. And I felt, well, let me first physically, this is like a, like a fun share. I'm like physically what happened. Like I, I crossed the finish line 
and I'm not kidding, moments after, like maybe a minute, my body like knew, my body and mind said, you're done, you know, you can release. And I just started getting a wave of nausea. I was just like, oh my God. And I was like, I was like seeing like some stars and I could like barely walk straight. I'm like, what the hell is happening? And I get down to like this athlete pit where they have food and stuff. And I had to like sit down. I was like, I'm going to throw up or pass out. I can't, I don't know. I was just so lightheaded. And I see around me, there's four people in this like short period of time, all finishing as well, getting taken out by ambulances, by medical staff on a stretcher because they also too. And what made me realize from a physical perspective is how much adrenaline, adrenaline, dopamine, whatever your, your positive neuroceptors are in your body that produces chemicals, that's what got me through. And once I could cross that line, my body and mind knew, okay, we don't have to keep pumping this. You're done. Just, and it was just like, and just like a blob. But it, that felt really bad physically. But mentally was where I learned a lot of my lessons. I, 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 I finished that night and so kind of got home. And I woke up the next day and I was very depressed, very depressed. Here I, here I was, I just accomplished the greatest physical feat in my entire life. Very proud. I had a lot of anxieties coming into it. Like, oh, what happened if this happened? If that happened? Accomplished one of the greatest physical feats that I'll probably ever accomplish. And I was depressed. I was sad. I'm like, I don't feel anything. That, what was the point in all of this? And I, I learned that this mantra that I, that I held on to is, and I, I learned this from my coach before the race, and it like kind of like aha'd me at the end of or the, the day after which is everything is right. And it's kind of like a, everything is right as it should be. And so no matter what happened on that race, whatever happened leading up to the race, if let's say my bike had a problem, let's say one of my concerns I read in blog posts is that I shit my wetsuit when I'm swimming. Like that was a fear. That was a rational fear that I would, <laughs> I would, but even if that happened, that was okay. That was what was supposed to happen. It's a bit about the obstacle is the way. Everything is right as it should be. No matter what, this is everything is right as it should be. And I finished this race and these lessons, this depression that I realized is that in my life, I have always tried to get to the next level, get to the next level, get to the next level, get to the next level. The Ironman is like the next big feat, the next mountain to climb. And then Spree is supposed to be a billion dollar company. And I realized the lesson of it all is that I finished this Ironman and I felt no joy. And it proved to me, it was finally my aha, that everything is right, which is no matter what feat we as humans are trying to accomplish, there's always more. Once I accomplish the Ironman, what's to stop me from doing a double Ironman, a triple Ironman? There's, there's ultra marathons that are 150 miles. It never stops. And we drive ourselves crazy, always going, always going, always going to these next feats. We're trying to grow our business more and more and more. And I realized that's once I accomplish that, I'm not going to be satisfied. There's going to be another one. And that's not a way to live. And so this everything is right started very tactically at the beginning. Like, hey, if the bike has a flat, then that's, that's okay. It's as it should be. At the end, there was this big aha that like, you know what, Neil? Settle like how your life is is exactly how it should be. And you don't need to go to that next feat. You can just be happy with the present moment. So I've never been taken that greatly since since I mean, a few months ago. So what is right with you now? Well, taking that idea of being present, not striving for the next, it is a bit of an ironic question, but there's I'm, I'm more purposeful with what that is. So I, I did a half Ironman just like a month ago. You, you might say like, Neil, just you just got done saying how you don't need to continue doing these feats. And here you did another half Ironman. I said a marathon yesterday, a bit of, on a whim. It was a hard physical feat. I feel like crap today about it. And so one could argue that I'm being a hypocrite when I say everything is right. But I'm, I see it as I'm being more purposeful in why I'm doing this. I did the Ironman for validating myself. I did the half Ironman in this marathon because I just kind of wanted to, it keeps me on my toes back to the, the Ironman. I, I thought it was, it, that did it accomplish keeping me on my toes, but that was validation. Like I'm going to climb this next mountain because it was the next, this half in this marathon, which is underneath the physical capacity there 
there's no validation there for me that I need. I just wanted to do these and they challenge me, they keep me on my toes. And yeah, yeah, so. So um, you are currently where? Yeah, so I'm, I'm in the Netherlands right now. Yeah, and I can sh share where, where you may be going with this. Another way of presence Another way of living in the moment, let's say, in my life. Um, I, I went to a music festival in Belgium in July, and I met my soulmate there. And within, I, I've had mature relationships, and I'm told in my life. And, and all of them kind of go to the typical timeline, you know, you date for a while, you're fine, and you only love them after a few months, maybe, and maybe you move in after half a year, or a year, and you know, just it was normal timeline of a chronological relationship. This girl I met within 30 hours, I told her I loved her. And there was something so deep and pure to what I saw in this woman. And all this, my race was on July 4th, and this girl at the end of July. All is converging on a evolution of being present, trusting the moments, saying, this is what it is right now in front of me. I, Sure, I could be thinking about what ifs and this and this and oh, this may not work out. Who, who knows? But I've just been trusting my heart more than than trying to climb that next mountain. And I really like this girl. I totally loved her. And I said, and we we talked for just a couple months. That was back in the end of July, about the start of August. And here I am in the Netherlands, two months later. And we, we had mature conversations where I said, I said, hey, Laura, you know, it doesn't work. What's the worst that either you and I are out? I'll just move back home. And like, oh yeah, I guess. Like, <laughs> so it's just this way of, of life that that I'm learning and experiencing more. That that I, I had a preconceived notion before that everything had to be a certain way. There's always another goal to climb. There's always something to do. I had to live within society's means and definitions. Like, oh, Neil, you can't move across the world for a girl you just met. What are you thinking about? Well, why can't I? And all these things have different themes and lines, that, but they, they all are interrelated, I, I, I think. And how do you reconcile all that? Because I, I, your, your story is fascinating to, I think, a lot of uh, listeners out there. As a business owner, a C-level executive, how do you balance or integrate all these, these pursuits you had individually and remotely and, and trips and destinations and challenges and mountains and with running a business, because you run a very successful business also. How do you integrate it all? How do you, how do, you do it all? Mm -hmm. One starts from the core values, which I know is a, you know, sometimes can be a bullshit answer, <laughs> but not if like you really, you finally figure it out. One of our core values is freedom. And I, as a remote first company, I started the company remotely, completely remote, no offices at all for the first like three years. And I always said, no matter what, I want our company to have the freedom to work wherever they want, however they want. I don't care what it costs, what it'll take. Like we are going to allow every employee. And so by setting that core value, it enables me as a leader to say like, yeah, I'm, I'm working from Costa Rica today, everybody. So there's some reference I'm giving here relating to is like I know some C-suite people worry about what that perception is like oh there's a jet jet setting CEO that's traveling all around the world well you can too like there's places you can live for five hundred dollars a month on a on a beach and work remote <laughs> that that doesn't make you jet setter see any person in our company anyone in the world really can work remotely and so our company enables that so that's more from like a tactical um from the other side how do i continue to um, run a successful company as ceo as these things are happening um that's that's come with years of building the right leadership team you know that's another kind of fluffy answer but can you trust can you can you delegate and empower those around you and just in these last two months with these major changes that have happened in my life and this is really like fresh right now my team would, would agree with it as I'm like trying to figure out like, how am I going to live in Netherlands? What are the logistics of that? I've had to delegate and, and empower even more than ever. So guys, I just don't have the capacity. I need you to take this over. 
And what I'm finding out, and I'm ashamed to admit this, and I'm still watching it carefully, is they're crushing it. Not that I never thought that they couldn't crush it if I would delegate more to them. But I'm taking a much more hands-off approach to say, you know what? I just don't care about this decision. Even if it costs our company even a lot of money, I just don't care because my other priorities right now are not that decision. So take it. I don't care. I'm really just like flipping this switch. And what I'm seeing as a result is the paradoxical, the paradox of it all is like, holy shit, like we're, everyone's doing great. I see like a lot of energy coming from our like leaders taking on this stuff and doing this and doing that. I'm like, oh my gosh, what have I been doing wrong this whole time by, I don't consider myself a micromanager, but I'm letting go of these like big decisions even now. And they're being, they're being taken over wonderfully. So I, that's an ongoing experiment right now to see like to what degree can I let go and see the company, my role that then becomes and what it is becoming right now um, is, is st- strategic. It's the big picture. Where are we going? How are we going to get there? And then have a you know, visionary integrator, EOS, you know, Who's gonna who's gonna do this? It's fascinating. Sometimes you just have to have uh, what is it? Uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Like uh, you have to have just this pressure to to do something different or that's causing something, and then all then something new is invented. And in your case, you know, you're just not distractions, but your other priorities forced you to delegate more and boom, before you know it, it's that it's actually a better outcome, maybe than if you were. <laughs> yeah, right. like, yeah, well, better than be. I could even do it too. I'm seeing like, oh my God, I was I'm not a good integrator. Why am I trying to project manage this small project on our team? Why don't I just let the ropes go and like sure enough as a better project manager that can run that show. Yeah. yeah. Well that is the that is the dream to have the dream team so you can all live the dream. Right. I think the I, I love that you shared your core value of freedom um, as a company core value. You know, it's a personal core value of mine. Uh, we never established it as a company core value. And your explanation of how you can uh, get away with it, and I don't mean that like you're getting away with it, but it's so acceptable accepted in your organization because it is an organizational core value. It's a it's a good reminder of how important it is to have. Um, core values personally as an entrepreneur and leader match with your company core values. So you can truly be authentic to yourself with your teams and not feel like there's anything to hide. Yes. Yeah. But when we set these core values, maybe two years ago, before that, we kind of had your painted wall ones, like integrity, honesty, like, you know, whatever you see on the wall. And we went through another process. All right, we need to look at like, Let's, let's revisit these. And it was a bit of a, it was a democratic process when we created these new, and I was very worried about this. And I work with my coach a lot. And I, said, I asked my coach, I said, we make this a democratic process with our, well, we got feedback from our whole company. Like describe like what you think our company would be in core values and some different prompts and stuff. And then we bubbled that up to leadership. And then I was giving a great voice to our leadership team. And I shared with my coach, I, I said, I'm worried. What if the outcome is not who I am? And as CEO and founder, that worry, because like if I'm not motivated by a certain core value, then you lose the founder's blood, the CEO's blood and passion, because he's like, oh, I don't really relate to those, it's not mine. And I was really worried. And the coach, the spiritual man, he said, How do you know that it's not going to be what you think it is? You brought these people to your company, you've stayed this long. Do you trust them? Do you, do you, do you believe that you're generally aligned? And I'm like, Yes, but like, Shouldn't I just, you know, just make an authoritarian decision? Because so then I can, you know, drive it from there. He said, you like, sure, you could. How many other companies do that? How many other companies run the company's core values and mission, vision from a top down perspective? And then employees across all ranges say, don't, don't relate to They say, I'm just getting told what to do. I'm just another cog in the wheel. So we made it bottoms up and everyone felt a part of this process. And then sure enough, the outcome became... Like this, this is exactly who we are, <laughs> and who, what I relate to, and I, and I have passion towards. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. I've been doing a lot of thought, thinking around bottoms-up leadership versus top-down leadership, and then um, I've thought about core values. And I stumbled across something recently. It was about the concept of tribes, and 
you know, people join a tribe and then they start to mold to the values of the tribe. Like they, they bring their own, but then they kind of accept their own or they leave. Uh, and I wonder how much of the outcome, this is where I was going with this question, was because your tribe existed and already had an unwritten kind of sense of core values that the bottom up allowed it to be articulated versus if you threw 20 people together or 30 people together and did it that way, would the outcome be, you know, the same or was it, you had already instilled the core values of the leader and therefore the tribe was already part of it. And of course it matched later. Right. Right. Accepting right. what the democratic, right. right, we got 30 strangers together. This is our new tribe's core right. value. Right, right, right. Uh, yeah, a day one of 30, 30 new people, it would be yes. completely all over the board. So, yeah, I think one could argue that over the years of those blank platitudes on a wall, we were hiring people that fit these current core values. Yeah. And, and the people who didn't feel a part of the general gist of the company left or, or had to be terminated in some regard. So we were more or less the same yeah, it'd be an interesting um, experiment to try to figure out how how that uh, outcome would be different, or maybe it wouldn't. You know, I don't want to assume it would be different. Maybe you get thirty strangers together, and there there would be a consensus consensus of core values that was just as good as the one you just got from a couple of years ago. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, maybe that's a uh, an experiment we can do together. Let's go find yeah, a few right. a few groups of guinea pigs we can play around with. <laughs> yeah, that could be a fun podcast. Well, I want to thank you, Neil, for your time. This has been a great conversation. We went through uh, a lot of different topics and ideas, and I hope uh, you got as much value from it as I did, and, and I hope our audience did as well. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me, Joe. Always a pleasure. Real quick, being back to you. And to our audience, thank you for listening. We'll, we'll be back next week. Uh, if you want to reach out to Neil, if you something he said sparked your interest, uh, we will have the contact information and show notes. But Neil, what's your preferred way to, to respond to inquiries? I would love, I just love to talk with other like-minded individuals. So please just shoot, shoot me an email. We'll, we'll provide my email. I just love to, to hear your thoughts and perspectives, good or bad. All right. Well, thanks again. And thanks, everybody. We will uh, talk to you next week. And that's a wrap. There's another successful episode of the Fractional C-Suite Retreat. See our show notes and more episodes at FractionalCSuiteRetreat.com. This podcast is sponsored by Your CMO, helping organizations grow, save time and money with better marketing strategy and fractional execution. Visit them at YORCMO.com, YourCMO.com, spelled wrong on purpose.